Good morning, church. Before we get into the sermon, I wanted to uh, share something I heard last week that encouraged me, and I hope that in me sharing it with you, it also encourages you. Last week, we had a, uh, a visiting pastor, a partnering pastor visit, and him and his wife uh, were part of the gathering last Sunday. And afterwards, uh, the pastor's wife, Patty, says, um, wow, when the music started, I, I felt like I was a part of a choir. Like, everyone was singing so loudly and, like, authentically. It was awesome. That's one of the things I love about our church is that we do sing loudly. And it encourages me. I know it encourages, encouraged her and encourages visitors, especially encourages those who, who might have had a bad week or are discouraged, reminds them of the truths of, of who we praise and, uh, and a way of encouraging us. So I just wanted to say thank you, church, for singing loudly. Uh, it encourages me. I always love coming out of my cage sometimes and uh, getting a chance to be out here because I can hear your voices a little more clearly. Uh, thank you, Will, for leading by example and your leadership of the music team. Uh, it's a blessing to be led by you. I think now might be a good time as well to thank you for your continued grace and patience with me as I preach. Um, it seems like every week someone comes up to me and, and lets me know that I made up a new word. <laughs> like last week, I didn't realize I, I said this word called indicate. Uh, <laughs> so I do this, and I don't even realize that I do this. So if, if you, anything that I say sounds funny or weird... Like I say something like, Jesus is not God, um, or, I mean, that would be pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> but if I even have a slip or something that I say doesn't make sense, um, it might be because I jumbled my words. It also might be that I'm, I don't really know what I'm talking about. Uh, so <laughs> that's just a joke. <clears throat> but if you have any questions, uh, please, please don't. Please don't hesitate to, to come up and talk with me. I, I love hearing questions and feedback from the sermon. So with that being said, let me invite you to take hold of your Bible. We can, we're getting into the passage our friend uh, Eli just read for us. John chapter 3, starting in verses 22. We're going through verse 36, ending, ending chapter 3 this morning. This is the eighth week that we've been in the gospel according to John. Time has flown by. We're still in chapter 3. But uh, next, week, next week, we'll pick up the pace a little bit. Will's going to be covering all of chapter 4. Lord willing, at this point. Uh, As you're finding your way to your text this morning, consider this question with me uh, as a way of introducing the text. What is the aim or the goal of your life? If you had a mission statement, what would your mission statement be? When I use this word aim, I mean the desire, the aspiration, the intent, the objective of your life. What is the aim of your life? If you had an anthem, what would it be? Maybe you're uh, here this morning and you're just thinking, wow, uh, I'm just trying to survive, right? That's still a purpose, surviving, right? I think regardless of if we have something that's that's voiced or communicated clearly, regardless if it sits kind of in the conscious level of our mind or the subconscious level, we all have an aim or a purpose, something that we're striving, a a central goal of our life. And I, I bring all this up to your attention this morning because I think what we find in our passage this morning could be what you describe as the Christian's aim or the goal of their life. Now, you might not use these exact words, but I think what we find from the witness and the lips of John the Baptist is describes the goal or the aim of a Christian very well, precisely. So in our passage this morning, the, the, the writer, John, shifts the story back to a character that's been introduced earlier, a guy by the name of John the Baptist. That's kind of what his name has been called throughout church history. We were introduced to John the Baptist back in chapter 1. He was someone who was sent before Jesus to bear witness to Jesus. 
uh, the Jewish leaders at the time, they come up to him and ask if he's the Christ. And John replies, I'm not the Christ. Uh, I'm the one who's preparing for the Christ. I'm, the, I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness, saying, make, make straight the paths of the Lord. I'm pre- preparing the way for the Christ. When John sees Jesus, he cries out, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So he's, he's bearing witness and testifying to the reality of who Jesus is. Later, he says, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. And this information is important not only to serve as a recap of what we learned so far about this character, John the Baptist, but many of the themes and the the teachings that we see in our passage this morning tie back to stuff that we've seen earlier in in John's account. So let's look at, with with that being said, let's look at verse 22 of chapter 3. After this, this is after this is Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, his talk about that you must be born again. It's not about being of the right lineage. It's about believing in me. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon, near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. That note is is important because what the, the author John is telling us is that all of what has happened so far happened before his imprisonment. So John, John the Baptist was an influential figure. He would have been known in this time that John would have written this. So he's just giving us some details of, of the historical context. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So evidentially, something about a conversation about purification which would have been uh, Jewish, the Jewish rites of being ceremonial clean, cleansing. This sparked some sort of debate or dispute over uh, maybe the longevity or the influence of John. It might have led to some self-reflection by John's disciples on, on their leader, John the Baptist. And John's disciples may have been thinking about this like many business owners think about rivaling companies. Even many people think about this in the church life. There's a new business in town. Everyone's going to him, right? We're losing our business. You can imagine how the disciples are, John's disciples are, are feeling. All are going to him. So John is losing influence. Everyone's going to Jesus. There's two new coffee shops in town. No one's going to the old one anymore. There's someone new in town. Everyone is leaving our church and going to their church, right? You can just imagine if John would have been in our time, the language that they might have used. And he seems to be describing something about us in our humanity that longs for influence, longs for success, longs for a following. If this event would happen today, I can imagine John's students saying, look, John, we're losing our followers on Instagram to this guy named Jesus or Twitter or whatever else is new. MySpace. <laughs> well, look at how John responds in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing let us has given him from heaven. At first glance, you think, okay, what does that have to do with anything? Is that a response to, to their question or their statement? Look, John, all are going to Jesus. And what John is doing here in this moment, he's affirming and reminding his disciples of God's sovereignty, of his providence. John is saying, Jesus cannot receive a following unless it's granted to him by heaven. In other words, nobody's going to Jesus unless God is sending them. God, the sovereign Lord, is the one who's determining Jesus' influence. God is the producer and the provider of all that we receive. And because John knows this, 
that a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. He's not worried that all are going to him. He's trusting in God's sovereignty. In fact, we'll see later that he's not only content with this reality, but it makes him really happy. He continues in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. In other words, you guys heard how plainly I told you. I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I was here to prepare the way before him. I was simply sent ahead of him. Then he further explains using an illustration, hopefully trying to help, I think, his disciples understand what's going on here. Verse 29. The one who hears the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In other words, the friend of the bridegroom understands his role. He's not the groom. He doesn't get the bride. He's the friend of the bridegroom. Now, in in ancient times, in this context, John is is probably talking about what we might consider today as the best man. The friend of the bridegroom might be the best man. He was, in this time, the best man was the one who organized and administered the wedding. So he was happy if everything in the ceremony went off without a problem. Nothing went wrong. The ceremony went off without a hitch. I've done my job. I've made the proper preparations. The bride and the groom are now here. I'm happy. I did my job. This is the friend of the bridegroom, right? Imagine how ridiculous it would be at a wedding. The best man is standing next to the groom, and he's looking miserable, and he's muttering. I wish I was married. Why can't I be getting married? Why can't this day be about me? I want the bride, right? Any friend worth beans would not do that, right? If you're a friend of the bridegroom, you're a friend of the groom, you're happy that he's getting married, right? That's what you're there to do. You're the best man. You're not the groom. So you're happy that he's getting married, happy for the couple. And John says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Another way of saying, my joy is full. You don't get more full than full. You don't get more complete than complete. You've got like full joy, complete joy. Not just content about this. He's happy. He's thrilled. My joy is complete. In other words, people leaving me, people going to Jesus, all going to him. I'm jacked about that. We don't need to worry about it. all are going to Jesus. Yeah, let's do it. All go to Jesus. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm rejoicing greatly. My job's complete. I've been pointing to Jesus. People are going to Jesus. For John, this is why he came. He's the friend. The rising influence, the popularity, the prominence of Jesus is why he came. It might have been troubling for John's disciples who might have been envious, but this is what John was working for and towards. Then he says this famous phrase, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become lesser. He must become more significant. I must become less significant, less, less significant. I I caught it that time. (laughs) He continues talking more about Jesus. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who loves the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. John the Baptist is saying Jesus is unique. He's the only one. He doesn't speak in an earthly way. He's from heaven, so he's above all. He's on a different playing field. He's superior. He's above all. Jesus was not created. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. He's co-eternal and co-equal with God. He's unique. He was in heaven. He comes down. There's no one like Jesus. 
Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So in other words, Jesus alone can speak with authority about heavenly truth, about he can speak with absoluteness about heavenly things because he alone has been in heaven. He has seen and heard these things. He's, he's been a witness to it. Yet he affirms that no one receives his testimony. And I don't think this is saying that no one will ever receive his testimony, but, but this is the idea and teaching we found early in chapter three that no one receives this testimony apart from the grace of God, the divine aid of God, the work of God. Humanity in itself cannot receive God. We're blinded, we're dead in our sin, and God must awaken us. We must be born again. We must be made alive by the Holy Spirit. Ties back to this, I think, in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the true light, referring to Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So even though Jesus is born witness to all that he's seen and heard in the heavenly realm, he's above all, no one receives his testimony. But verse 33, whoever receives his testimony, which taken into context, what we've learned in chapter 3, by the empowering grace of God and, and the Holy Spirit, the supernatural work of the new birth, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So setting the seal would have been uh, like a guarantee. It would have been like a stamp of approval. So a seal would have been made of metal or, or clay, uh, made of wax that would authenticate a document. So when, when John is saying, whoever sets a seal to this, he's saying, whoever receives the testimony of Jesus proves or certifies that God is true. They set their seal of approval to the reality that, that all that Jesus bears witness to is true because God cannot lie. Because if Jesus is God, he was sent by God and he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And Jesus so perfectly bears witness to all that God has said and only what God has said. To not believe Jesus is to say God is a liar. You see the logic in that? This verse shows that you can't say you believe in God and not believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're calling God a liar. 1 John 5.10 affirms and repeats this truth found here. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Make sense? Okay, continue in verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the very words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So because the Father loves the Son, he's given him all things. And unlike prophets before who, who received the Spirit according to the measure of their, their role or their calling or their job, Jesus receives the Spirit without measure. It's limitless. He's unique in that aspect as well because the Father loves the Son. He has given him the Spirit without measure. And he, Jesus utters the very words of God. All things have been given into his hand. And, and, and the chapter concludes in verse 30, 36, excuse me, by kind of wrapping up some of the main themes that we've seen all throughout chapter 3. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we've learned earlier that the only way to escape wrath is to believe in Jesus. So it's commanded by God. So then a failure not to believe in God is, is disobedience. And the wrath of God remains on you. Therefore, the unbelief is disobedience. 1 John 3.23 says it like this. And this is his, referring to God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. 
In his commentary, a guy named R.C. Sproul says it like this. Believing in the Son is more than intellectual assent. Trust in Christ's person will inevitably motivate obedience to his words. So disobedience reveals a lack of saving faith. This connects back to what John had said earlier in verses 15, 16, and 18. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. See that that verse kind of ties in everything that we've seen so far in chapter 3? So because all of humanity has rebelled against the goodness and provision of God, and God is completely good and just, he must deal with evil. This is what the Bible talks about is God's wrath, his, his hatred towards sin and what's destructive towards his creation. Right, so now we've seen what the text says. We've, we've looked through what the text says. Let's look at what the text means and see how we might draw out some principles and apply them to our lives. I think the principle that seems to be at the crux of the passage is, is found at the center, which is found in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is what John says to his disciples, claiming all are going to him. This is why he needs a greater following. And after this claim, I think this is why John goes on to highlight more of the person and work of Jesus. John is seeking the increase of his fame, of his renown, of his character, of his popularity, of his status. He's seeking to increase Jesus. Now, in the immediate context, there's good reason to believe there's sufficient evidence found from historians that in this time, in the ancient Sumerian law, the best man was actually prohibited from marrying the bride. And this makes, I think, John's illustration of the friend of the bridegroom and the fact that he must increase because he had absolutely no right. He would have never been able to marry the bride or to have the influence of marrying the bride or seeking the influence of the groom. It wasn't about him. His popularity was, was ultimately not about him. It was ultimately always supposed to be pointing to Jesus. And John knows that God did not send him to be the end. He was the sign. He was the signal to the road. It says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I think the reference to the voice there is significant. Because John said earlier, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So what John is saying here is that Jesus has the superior voice. I was the voice up to a certain point, pointing people to Jesus, and now a greater voice is here. He must increase. What he says there. And he says that hearing the, hearing the bridegroom's voice, he rejoices greatly. Literally, the, the, the translation would be rejoices joy, which in English doesn't really make much sense. So translations like the ESV will say rejoices greatly. The NIV translation will say the word full of joy. He then continues, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So you see all, all that combination of the phrasing. Rejoices joy, rejoices greatly, he has full joy, now therefore my joy is now complete. This is really significant. The word joy here is used to describe an emotion of great happiness and pleasure. And given these two statements, I think John is seemingly trying to make it so clear that this is totally awesome. People leaving me to go to Jesus, I've got joy to the max. Full joy. John is not some sore loser, but grudgingly thinking, okay, Jesus, waste my white, my white flag, you win. He's jacked that, more, that Jesus is getting this following. People are leaving him and going to Jesus. Yes! That's what John's saying. 
Full joy, complete joy. This is a win. In his commentary on the gospel according to John, D.A. Carson says this, For John the Baptist to have wished he were someone else, called to serve in a way many would judge more prominent, would simply be covetous by another name. If the person he envied were the Messiah himself, he would be annulling the excellent ministry God had given him. Deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things would, in that instance, betray not only unbelief and faithlessness, but the worst form of perennial human sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. The fact that John here uses this illustration, I'm the friend of the bridegroom, he must increase. John knows his role, and it's, it's according to the sovereign will of God. He must increase. It's not determined by human things or, or conditions. This is according to the will of God. Therefore, he must increase. And for John, knowing his role, seeing Jesus accomplish it, completes his joy. Therefore, I'm concluding from the text this principle that knowing our role, seeing the supremacy of Jesus, and believing in him leads to great joy. Receiving eternal life. Last week, we defined eternal life as the following, the life of abundant joy and a measurable blessing in the presence of God forever. John believes in Jesus. He believes the influence and the following he's receiving is from God. He knows Jesus must increase. It's determined by the will of God. And God's plan is never frustrated. John believes that Jesus utters the very words of God. He's come from heaven. He's above all. And I think the author John is showing us in John the Baptist that believing in Jesus, he's demonstrating this eternal life, this abundant joy, this immeasurable blessing of believing in Jesus, a joy that is full and complete. So I want to show you in this passage that belief in Jesus brings a joy that is full and complete. I want to show you in this passage that by believing in Jesus, which is God's command, it leads to a confession that claims he must increase. I must decrease. Jesus in my life must become more significant. I must become less significant. I think the author John shows us in this story through John the Baptist's confession that believing in Jesus results in seeking the increase of Jesus' fame and renown at the cost of your own. At the beginning of the sermon, I made the claim that in this passage we find uh, an anthem, uh, a, a verse, an aim that all Christians could say, this is the aim of my life, this is the mission of my life, this is the goal of my life. This is it. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. This is what a Christian says and wants and desires and believes. I want Jesus to have a greater influence. I want to become less. All Christians could sing this anthem. He must become greater. I must become lesser. This is a principle that is found throughout the rest of God's word. The Apostle Paul says like this in Philippians 1.20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always... So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Other translations say Jesus might be honored or Jesus might be exalted in my life. This is, this is the aim of Paul. If you seek to increase Jesus in your life, you seek to magnify Jesus. And when I use that word magnify, I think when Paul uses that word magnify, he's not talking about how you might magnify under a microscope. Right, or magnify like a magnifying glass where you're burning ants in the sun. Anyone ever did that? He's not talking about making something really small and making it appear bigger. You don't magnify Christ like you do a... a what's the word I'm looking for? 
Microscope. Right. Microscope. You magnify Jesus like you do a telescope. In a telescope, you look at something that's really big, that to us might appear small, like you look at a star or the moon. It might look smaller, but when you look through the telescope, it, it makes it look more like what it really is, right? So when you magnify Jesus, you're not seeking to make Jesus, who's really small, appear bigger. You're making to, to show the bigness of who he really is, to show him for who he truly is. This is what we talk about magnifying Jesus. This is the anthem of a Christian. I want to increase Jesus, magnify Jesus in my life. This was the anthem of the people in the Old Testament, Isaiah 26, 8. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. So Old Testament, New Testament. John the Baptist, Paul, Isaiah. This is the claim. God, his glory, his fame, his renown, I want to increase that, and that's the desire of my heart. Does the desire of your heart and your soul echo that of John? The aim of your life, to seek the increase of Jesus. I want him to have more fame, more popularity, more renown. To seek more of Jesus and to understand him, to seek his increase, I think comes from a commitment to God's word and, and wisdom. It comes from understanding more about God and his ways and his wisdom as recorded in his word. It's a commitment to God's word that's internalizing it and applying it and seeking to meditate on it. It's, it's humbling yourself, seeking correction and instruction from it. To seek the increase of Jesus is to live the way Jesus has laid out for us, which is, is wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Seeking the increase of Jesus means practically putting in practices into your life to remind you of this truth and teach you more about Jesus. You're committing yourself to wisdom, to living in God's way and word and living the way Jesus has said that, that life works best. To seek the increase of Jesus means putting yourself in front of resources that will teach you and humble you, it will correct you, it will equip you. The Psalms teach blessed means characterized by happiness and joyful and, and satisfied. Blessed are those who keep God's testimonies and seek him with their whole heart. In other words, you want to seek the increase of Jesus, you seek to obey God's word with your whole heart. In other words, there's a commitment to obey God and seek him with all of your attention, your affections, your energy. It means disciplining yourself to seek that. It means that we seek the increase of Jesus when, not only when we, when we don't just feel like it, there's a, there's a discipline there. Right, recently, I, I've started to go to the gym. I'd like to go twice a week. And I'm not at the point yet, I don't know if I ever will be, where uh, going to the gym seems more exciting than sitting on the couch and eating nachos. It's a struggle. It's a, really, it's a real battle. And you go and you're hungry and you're working out. It's not always pleasant. Maybe I'll get there. I don't know. But it's a discipline. Right? If I went to the gym any time that I felt like it, I, I wouldn't go very often. And if we think that, oh, I'll, just, I'll study about Jesus, I'll learn about Jesus, I'll commit myself to Jesus when I feel like it, I think the same rings true. Being a person who seeks the increase of Jesus and the decrease of themselves is someone who cares more about people meeting and encountering and discovering Jesus than being liked by others. A person who seeks the increase of Jesus is someone who is creative and wise and a steward of their personality, their time, their abilities, their gifts that God has given them to make Jesus known. It means looking for ways that you're initiating to bless and serve and do good work so that others might ask you and you might give Jesus as the reason.
You show up to work and you work hard. You care about your coworkers. You show a genuine interest in the welfare of others. You're marked by humility. You confess your shortcomings. You apologize when you do wrong. You seek to be generous. Not that people can go, wow, Daniel's pretty awesome. Daniel's really nice and kind and generous. So that you give people a reason to ask. This is because of Christ. This is the way we can magnify Jesus in our life. When you serve others, you pray that they ask why, and you can share. You want to increase the fame and reputation of Jesus. Seeking the increase of Jesus looks like leveraging your finances not for the enjoyment of self, but for the display of advancing Jesus and his cause. And friends, I think from this statement in John, we see that, that this call and this aim is not just a sense of duty. It's, it's a path of joy. Seeking the increase of Jesus leads to full joy. But if we consider how do we naturally resist this, we look at that question in our handout, try to shape the sermons and, and cause us to be honest about how we read the text. I think uh, if we were honest, we could say no one naturally does this. Like our first parents, like the first humans, all humanity has wanted to be God and stand in his place. We have become like him in wanting to seek glory and honor and reputation. We don't believe in inner arrogance. We want to take Jesus' place. We don't naturally see Jesus as worthy of all of our desires and attention and energies. We don't naturally commit ourselves to make him famous and to seek his fame and renown. I did a Google search this week and typed in the phrase, how to become less influential. <laughs> and it's like Google thought I was an idiot because all the responses came back like this. Seven highly effective habits to become the most influential. Just totally ignored my question. Nine habits of profoundly influential people. 25 things influential people do better than anyone else. 10 ways to make people like you. How to increase your influence at work. Right, those, those are just all titles of articles on the very first page. So I went to YouTube and I typed in how to have less followers on Instagram. Like the exact opposite. The same thing happened. It's like YouTube thought I was an idiot. All the results were how to get followers for free how to gain more followers, how to trick followers to get influence fast. <laughs> this is just on the first page. There were more results in the search engine for how to make yourself look good, how to make yourself look better in selfies. We don't take classes and look for ways to decrease our influence and lose followers, do we? The reality is the disciples of John are bringing up here are realities that we can all relate to, getting out at what human hue who humans are naturally. We are seekers of self-glorification, self-realization. In the worldview, the belief of the Christian faith is that no one honors God as God or gives thanks to him. We don't naturally desire or pursue our center God, center ourselves on the glory of God. We think the purpose and the aim of our life is the display of our magnificence and worth. Now, you might not say it like that, but that's really what we mean. What brings us joy is doing what we want, defining our purpose, creating our own meaning, searching whatever is inside, and regardless of what anyone else thinks, pursuing that at the expense of all things. This is the gospel of Disney. We live, breathe, and soak in these truths that it's all about us. Relationships are about us. So you don't have to stay married. Uh, you stay married as long as it, it works for you. If it stops personally benefiting you, then you go on to someone else. You do whatever makes you happy. If you've realized maybe you don't have happiness in your job or in your family life, you might think, okay, if I can just get to retirement, then I'll be happy. 
was also reading another article that was describing what you can do with your retirement. I thought this was pretty funny. <coughs> Nowhere on the list was seeking the fame and increase of Jesus. Just wanted to share that at the beginning. <laughs> it was like 25 things of what to do with your retirement. Travel, buy a motorhome, move out to the country, move out to the city, volunteer, teach, spend time with friends, watch the grandkids, watch as many movies as you want, be a mentor, read, write a book, start a blog, learn to play a musical instrument, start a new hobby. My favorite one was at the very bottom, number 25. The bottom of the list was this, what to do with your retirement, nothing. You earned your retirement. Go do whatever you want, including nothing. This is the message of the culture and what we naturally do, isn't it? You are free to do whatever you want, and America is founded on these realities, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Do whatever you want, do whatever makes you happy. And the message of the Christian faith is not that these are bad desires but that all of these desires are ultimately only fulfilled in Christ. The Christian faith is not like Eastern religions that talk about all desires are bad, you have to rid yourself. It's not like the Greek Stoics who just thought everything internally was bad and the soul has to be renouncing all desires. The message of the Christian faith is that full happiness, full joy, full satisfaction comes only in Christ. And friends, I think there's profound wisdom in our text and in our Bibles this morning and profound wisdom for the, for the modern world. Because friends, if you believe that your life is all about you, you will never truly be free. You will never really experience full joy. Because if your life is, a spread, is about spreading your fame, your renown, you will be enslaved to your own performance or to your own perception, your feelings of how well you're doing. If your life is all about achieving superior status, you will be enslaved and your joy will rise and fall by how quickly and, or how fast or how far you climb. If your life is all about your children and magnifying the display and greatness of your children, you'll be placing a burden upon them that they can never live up to and they'll end up hating you for it. I hope that you see that building your life upon yourself or another person is so incredibly fragile because ultimately there are so many things that are out of our control. I saw this again and again with friends in high school. The aim of their life was to be the best athlete, and they'd tear their ACL. And they couldn't play sports, and they were devastated. It's like their life had no meaning. Can you imagine the disciples of John thinking back before? They might have had these conversations. Well, before this Jesus of Nazareth came along, we were living the good life. I mean, everyone was coming to us. Now this Jesus, this Jesus John, who you said, this is the Messiah, you bore witness to him, just ruined everything. All are going to him. We're losing influence. We're losing popularity. Everyone's going to this new guy named Jesus. And if this is the case, the disciples of John are not truly free, are they? They're enslaved by the performance and recognition of their master. And friends, if, if your joy is dependent upon the fame you receive, the acceptance you perceive from others, you seek your increase above all, you will either become very prideful and self-righteous because you think that you've accomplished it, or you will be in despair continually because you've never lived up to it. Ultimately, it's a very selfish way to live. It's all about you. The Christian faith is the only faith that brings true freedom, joy, and peace, because ultimately, it's not about what you must do or what you've done. The Christian faith is about what Jesus has done and what he has accomplished. So we consider, how is Jesus the hero? How is he the one who, who accomplishes what we do and, and not do? Jesus is the one who, who glorified God perfectly. He's the only one who did that. He, he is the only one who 
allows us to experience full joy and full satisfaction and full freedom because he accomplishes it. Something that can never be lost because he has done it. Talked about last week that the Christian faith is not about trying, it's about trusting. And joy and right standing with God comes by belief and faith by receiving, not by achieving. The Apostle Paul, who's one of the first missionaries of the Christian faith, credited for writing many letters of what is found in the New Testament, wrote a prayer for his friends in the church at Rome that said, May the God of all hope fill you with all joy in believing. John 6, 38 through 40 says this. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Was Jesus saying that. And this is what John the Baptist is seemingly trying to teach his disciples. Why are you having a debate over purification? Why do you care if Jesus is getting more recognition? If you knew this Jesus, you would rejoice with me. You know that I'm not the Christ. I've told you I'm not the Messiah. The Messiah is superior to me. And this is the will of God that people should believe in him, should follow him. Our baptism prepares the way for the Messiah who brings a greater baptism, a greater purification. He has come for his bride to take away her sins fully and finally. I've heard his voice and I'm rejoicing greatly. Rejoice with me. John the Baptist using this illustration of a bridegroom and groom is significant language and a theme seen throughout the rest of scripture because God is described often as a husband to his people. People are described as the bride. But all throughout God's word and the story of the Bible, the bride, God's people, have been unfaithful. Especially if you read from the ESV Bible, there is some, some strong language that talks about the unfaithfulness of God's people. They've been adulterous and forsaking their good and kind husband. They've turned to lovers who abuse them and trample them, who treat them terribly. Regardless of God's continual covenant love, God's people continually cheat on him. They give themselves to people who don't love them or don't want what's best for them. Yet, the story of the Bible, the message of the gospel is that God took on flesh. He sent his son Jesus to redeem his unfaithful wife. He took her filthy rags. He was mocked and scorned. He was ridiculed and beaten so that his wife, this adulterous, unfaithful woman, could be clothed in his righteousness and splendor. He washed her clean. He was treated like a criminal. He was despised and shamed so that she could be treated with honor. He was rejected so that she could be accepted. The Bible teaches that God loved the church and gave himself up for her and washes her in his word, cleanses her from all her unrighteousness so that he might present the bride, his church, his people, without wrinkle or spot or blemish to God. Jesus is the one whom God has given all things into his hand, and yet he lost everything so that we could be right, we could be made right with God. We could be made clean, we could be cleansed and stand before God. He came into the world to die for the world. And it's not about cleaning yourself up, it's not about behavioral modification, it's not, it's about belief in the person and finished work of Jesus. So, friends, have you heard the voice of the bridegroom? Do you believe in what the bridegroom has done? 
I don't think you will rejoice greatly at Jesus and you won't have complete joy and you won't seek the increase of Jesus at the expense of your own fame unless you believe this. Unless you believe that Jesus is unique and superior and ultimate and supreme. He is the one who is from above. He's above all. He has a wisdom and understanding of life as it has an aerial view. He knows how life works best. He made it possible to be made right with God. What Jesus has commanded is belief. And Jesus has commanded that we obey his call to believe in him. And that receiving eternal life and being with him just happens by faith alone, being forgiven and pardoned from the wrath of God. You won't seek the increase of Jesus unless you believe that Jesus is the only Savior who, if you attain him, will satisfy you. And if you fail him, will forgive you. That no one does, no one treats you like that, with that kind of mercy and grace. Jesus is the only Savior who left his status and influence. He was rejected so that you could be accepted. I said earlier that if you believe your life is about you, you will never be truly free and experience full joy. Because if you believe that your life is about spreading your fame and your renown, you will be enslaved to your performance. But because of Jesus, in other words, if you believe and cling to Christ alone, you believe by sheer grace that you have been cleansed and you have access to God. If your life is about believing and trusting the renown and the fame and the glory of Jesus, then and only then will you be truly free. Because here's why. Jesus has already finished the work. His person and his work doesn't change. You cannot frustrate that or change that. No one could. Satan couldn't, no man could change the plan of God to do this in Christ. You seek to place your trust in your health, you may lose it. You seek to place your trust and your joy in your sports team, there's no certainty of the outcome. You seek to place your joy in your appearance, you'll get old. You seek to rejoice in your following, it may fade. Friends, you've known this and I've seen this, that the most selfish people are often the most miserable. And everyone and everything in our time has an expiration date. The movie stars, the models, the people and fame of renown in America will be forgotten in at least 500 years. Most likely, everyone in this room will be forgotten in a generation or two. There's only one who has existed from eternity past. There is only one whose glory never changes or fades. There is only one who is deserving of all of our affection and as our attention. There is only one who brings never-ending, never-ending joy and peace and satisfaction and freedom, and his name is Jesus. It comes from Christ. He never changes. You can bank everything on him. C.S. Lewis said this, the principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find yourself. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have had, nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Friends, don't let your joy depend on something that can be lost. Set your joy in what's been accomplished by Jesus and his promises. This means everything in your life becomes an opportunity to demonstrate that belief, that Jesus is better. 
Everything becomes an opportunity to pray for the Spirit to show you where you need a greater belief to demonstrate the, the influence and to seek the influence, the influence of Jesus. Friends, root your joy and your happiness in the only thing that is stable and secure, the glory and the fame of Christ, his worth and his magnificence. You can bank your life on him. You can count on him. He will never fail you nor forsake you. He will never be defeated or surprised. Friends, may we be reminded from John the Baptist this morning, may we be corrected and empowered by our passage this morning, that the bridegroom has come for his bride, that he has purified her with the washing of his word, that he has clothed her in his righteousness, that we have heard his voice and we have rejoiced greatly, that his voice has caused us to come alive. We have seen him for who he truly is. Therefore, in his presence and at the work of Christ, we get to share in the joy and the rejoicing of John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. We have tasted and experienced that in God's presence, there is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. And we know that there is nothing that will thwart the sovereign will of God. Friends, may we bank and believe and pray and rest in this truth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you send your spirit to cause us to experience these realities, that we are completely reliant and dependent upon your power and your work. Father, naturally we wake up and we are distracted and deceived that joy and satisfaction is found in merely earthly things or people. Naturally, our enjoyment of the things you've created ends in them. So Father, help us to see all your gifts and enjoy them with you being the end and aim. Spirit, may you now grant wisdom and discernment to us as we seek to increase the name and fame of Jesus. May you grant wisdom to us as we seek to be wise stewards of what you have given us, our abilities and our resources and our time, our gifts for the advancement of your name, Jesus. Father, we do pray for those in our workplaces and those in our community, those in our neighborhoods, our friends and our family, that they might get a better picture of who you are, Jesus, by the way that we live and love and speak. Would your grace humble us and empower us to do this for the enjoyment and display of your worth? Amen.